Last week, actually two weeks ago now, last time we met, we went through the second chapter of Second Peter, and the primary point Peter was making in that chapter was a warning to believers, and he was warning us that there are going to be false teachers that are going to come into the church, teachers who will teach destructive heresies, he said. They'll have a word from God, or they will twist the words of God to mean something that God never intended, and their intention is to lead men into lives of sin. And in chapter 3, as Pastor Bob read earlier, you may have noticed that he warns us now that there will be scoffers that will come into the church. And so Peter told us in chapter 1, he told us again at the beginning of chapter 3, that I'm going to remind you of things that you already knew. He wrote this letter by way of reminder, he said, not even by way of teaching us something new, but reminding us of the truths that we already know as believers, as followers of God, so that we would be able to recognize the error and the lies of false teachers and of scoffers. And also so that we would remember the promises of God. And the promise that he's talking about in this chapter, chapter 3, is that Christ will return one day. So before we get into the actual warning about the scoffers, I think it's important to point out what Peter repeated. He started the warning in chapter 2 with the verses 16 through the end of chapter 1, laying a foundation for the authority of God's Word. Do you remember that if you were here during the first two chapters? Peter said that we have a more full certainty of the prophets, of the word of the prophets, those who God spoke to in the Old Testament telling of events that would come because he was with Jesus. Peter and the disciples, in particular the apostles, were with Jesus They went on the Mount of Transfiguration, they saw his glory, they knew that he was the divine son of God come to earth and fulfilling many of the prophecies just by doing that. And through his word and through his use of the Old Testament, Jesus more fully confirmed the words of the Old Testament prophets and he also gave authority to the apostles to be able to speak on his behalf and to teach things of the kingdom of God. So Peter started chapter chapter 2 really with the end of chapter 1, with this laying of the foundation of the authority of God's Word, and then he does the same thing before he goes into the warning in chapter 3. He once again tells us that God's Word is our source of truth, and that's important. And we know that today, that's the way we live today. As a church, Scripture, as God's Word, is our source of truth. It's the foundation of truth that we build our church life on. It's the foundation of truth that believers build their lives on. And so with that foundation set, Peter then goes on with the second thing that he wants to warn the church of. And he says, scoffers will come with scoffing. And what are they going to scoff about? They're going to make fun of Jesus' promise that he will return. They're going to say he's not going to return. The world's going on as it's always gone. as the way it's always going to be. We don't need to worry about Jesus coming back. If he was going to do it, he'd have already done it saying things like this, completely undermining the authority of Jesus and of the prophets and the apostles. 
mocking the church, mocking Jesus. And why are they doing that? If you look in the verse 3, <clears throat> excuse me, verse 3 of chapter 3, these, these scoffers will come following their own sinful desires. They don't love the Lord. They aren't living in obedience to the Lord. We can see that the false teachers in the previous chapter were following their sensual desires and they were very greedy. They loved money and they perverted God's love to a selfish love in all of the different evil ways that that played out. So these teachers and these scoffers don't want to have to answer to God one day. And that is why they scoff and that is why they belittle and make fun and undermine the, what we know as the truths of God's word and the promises that God made that Christ would come back and he's not just coming back having ignored the sins of men. Look at what chapter or verse 7 of chapter 3 says, that the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly is going to happen when Christ does return. And that is why this truth can't be the reality for these people. And that is why they will be coming and undermining the truths of God's word. I was, I've had now a couple of weeks, Bean's church got canceled last week, to reflect on this passage. And I was thinking of what that looks like today. Do we have people that are scoffing at God's word today, specifically saying that Christ won't return. And I can't think of a time or, or uh, somebody who has put it in those specific words that Christ isn't going to return, you don't got to worry about that. There's probably people that are saying that. But I did think about those who start right at the beginning, right in Genesis, and say, God's not, God's not the creator He's not the one that did all of these things. They deny intelligent design, for example. We have attacks on Scripture, on God's Word, on that level that it almost makes you think back of his warning in chapter 2, that they're going to be sneaky, they're going to be deceitful, they're going to come in and they're going to teach error, but they're going to be tricky about it, they're going to be clever about it. And we see that very often in our society, undermining God's word. And I do believe, ultimately, the same goal is in mind. We don't want to have to be accountable to God. So if we can undermine the authority of his word, then we can ignore the fact that one day we're going to have to stand in judgment. And perhaps they're deceiving themselves and they truly believe that. And they're trying to get others to follow them, though. That's one of the things that Peter continues to bring up. They're, they're, they're deceived, they're deceiving themselves, they're lying about what they're saying, and they're trying to get weak people in the church to follow them in lives of sin. And Peter says, you need to be aware of that. And you need to be able to recognize it, and you need to be able to resist it. It's one of the reasons that it's so important for us to know who's teaching our children and what our children are being taught, because the, God that, the world that rejects God and godliness and truths of Scripture is going to do everything they can to undermine His Word and to lead people astray, starting with vulnerable children. And so Peter says, starting in verse 5, that these scoffers, 
are actually familiar with Scripture. They know what God's Word says because He says they intentionally forget certain things. They choose to ignore that by the very Word of God, He existed, He spoke earth into existence. And He says, by that same Word, the world was flooded. The scoffers are choosing to ignore. They're deliberately ignoring what they have seen and heard in Scripture that God is the Creator, that God is the one that had the authority to judge the earth in the days of Noah and flood it by His very Word. And He says that in verse 7, the world is now being upheld by the Word of God. It is God and His Word that is actually allowing and causing the world to remain in it together and operating as it is right now. And so the scoffers are off on every level. They're saying they want us to think that God has forgot about the world or that he's indifferent to sin. God's not indifferent to sin. Can't find that in Scripture anywhere. You have to ignore Scripture. You have to undermine Scripture if you want to think that God's indifferent to sin and if you want to believe that God is not going to come and judge the world one day because Scripture is full of that talk, of that warning for, for the faithful to, to beware of it and to resist it and for those who have not put their faith in Jesus to be aware of what's coming because everybody's going to fall into one of those two camps. And so the godless are going to ignore these words, these truths about God. The fact that none of us would be here, that the world wouldn't be here, that things wouldn't go on as they go on day by day if God wasn't holding it all together. They ignore it because it doesn't fit their philosophies and because it is a vain attempt to avoid accountability before God. And so Peter goes on to tell the church, the believers, which you can see in verse 1 of chapter 3 and at the beginning of the whole letter, he's, acknowledging, he's talking to believers here. He's talking to the beloved, the, those who are called of God. And he says, believers, here's what you need to remember, starting in, in verses 9 through 13. Remember the promise. Remember the words of Scripture. Remember the words of Jesus. He is coming back. Don't doubt that. And I think this is why one of the reasons that he starts out before both of these warnings establishing the authority of God's word because his warning is built on what God has said, on what Jesus has, has affirmed. He is indeed going to return. We see in John chapter 14, Jesus telling the disciples, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. And then we see in Acts 1, this is another example, this all, all through Scripture, and I'm not even talking about the Old Testament prophets, prophets of Jesus coming and of judgment, but and the angel, when Jesus ascended into heaven at the beginning of Acts chapter 1, the angel said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go. So Paul saying, Peter is saying, believers, Trust God's word. Trust the words of Jesus. He is going to come back. Don't let people mislead you. Don't let them come in and trick you. Don't let their clever words make you think that, well, too much time has passed. If he was going to come, he's coming. He just he didn't come. He didn't keep his word. You don't have to worry about it. There's no accountability for sin. All of these arguments and motives 
are wrong, and Peter wants to make sure that we have a foundation so that we don't get sucked in. Why does Peter say then, what is his argument about this time, about the, about the argument that the scoffers are giving that, well, too much time has passed. If he was going to come, he would have come. Apparently, this is just gonna, the world's just going to go on forever. God apparently doesn't really care about judging sin. He's not going to do anything about it. Peter says in verse 9, be careful not to impose your understanding of time onto God's plan. He says, God's time is not the same as our time. To God, a thousand years are like a day, and a day is like a thousand years. Don't assume that you know God's plan and his perfect timing better than he does. So that's the first thing he says. Our finite minds aren't able to comprehend and to know fully what God's plan is. God alone knows that. But he also gives us another encouragement. For believers, this is... This is very encouraging. And for those who are hearing God's word and maybe haven't believed yet, this is also encouraging because he says in verses 9 and in verses 15 that God's patience is for salvation. God's patience, his, his what we might think as slowness to return, we might wonder, is he indifferent to all of the sin that's going on? How could he let it go? Is he really paying attention? No. Scripture says that he is slow, as we would count slowness, that in his timing, he wants all who would come to salvation to come to salvation. Until his elect have fully come to salvation, he's not going to return because that wouldn't fit into his plan. You could think of it like, what if I bet 100 years ago there were believers. I mean, I, I bet ever since Christ departed, there were believers saying, well, Christ, I hope he comes back today. I hope he comes back this year. I hope he comes back soon. Well, what if he would have came back 100 years ago? What would that have meant for us? God has got a plan. We, if we trust his word, then we need to trust his timing and we need to understand that his timing might not fit into our timing, might not be completely understood by us. But he has a plan and for all of those who he has called to himself, until they come to salvation in him, he is not going to return. But when they do, he'll be back. And Peter says you can trust this. And this is going to require faith because some of it we just aren't able to wrap our minds around. But we see God's love and his mercy. Even though there's language through here talking about much language, just in this chapter, talking about God coming back and delivering justice, we also see his mercy and we see his love. He's waiting until the fullness of the elect, till the fullness of all who are going to come to him comes, and then he'll come back. And if you were here and heard our discussion in the first chapter, if you're pretty sure that you're not saved, that you are not one of God's, you don't know that you are not one of God's. He may call you today, he may call you tomorrow. When he moves, you will know it and you will come to him. It's not too late. If you're sitting here listening to this today, it is not too late. And that's very encouraging. But it is a discouraging message in many ways for a lot of people. 
Because we know that many are not going to believe God, and we know that many will be judged, and they will experience God's wrath and his harsh judgment. He says in verse 10 that the day of the Lord, the return of Christ, is going to come like a thief, and a thief isn't a welcome guest. <laughs> we don't welcome a thief into our home. And so if, if he's coming like a thief, then to many it's going to be an unwanted coming, an unwelcome coming. We're going to be surprised, they're going to be surprised when he comes and things are not going to go well for them. It seems that in the Old Testament when God would speak to his people Israel through the words of prophets, many of which, the ones he wanted us to have, are recorded in Scripture. We have many prophets recorded in the Old Testament giving us words and warnings and prophecies of God. And one of the things that was a regular message was that he is going to deliver his people. There was a message of deliverance, and there was always a message of judgment for the wicked too. But see, Israel often... They were being attacked. They were in a battle with somebody. When they cried out to God, they were crying out of oppression. God would deliver them or he would prophesy of a deliverance. And so they were looking forward to being delivered from their enemies. But there were still many of the Israelites that didn't truly love God. And so what they thought was a good thing, the day of the Lord, when God was going to come, was truly not going to be a good, thing, good day for them because it wasn't just a deliverance from their enemies. It was actually going to be judgment for all of those who did not believe in God. And Amos chapter 5 says something interesting. I'm going to read that for you. Chapter 5, verse 18, speaking to Israel, "'Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord?' Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light and gloom with no brightness in it? There's a sense that they were having a wrong idea, a wrong expectation of the day of the Lord, expecting that God was going to come and that it was going to be this good thing, but there were many of them that didn't believe and it was going to be a terrible thing. In Isaiah chapter 2, he said, Proud men, speaking of this day of the Lord that was to come, proud men will be brought low, arrogant men will be humiliated. The Lord alone will be exalted in that day. Indeed, the Lord who commands armies has planned a day of judgment. For all the high and mighty, for all who are proud, they will be humiliated. See, the day of the Lord is going to be a terrible day for many people. It's going to be a terrifying event. God told us through Isaiah as well as many others, that the righteous should place their hope in that day, that the Lord will deliver the righteous. But for all of those who don't love God, it's going to be a very terrible day. The wicked will be brought to justice. I think, I think this would be a good spot to talk about the wicked for just a minute because that's another thing I was thinking about. You know, the wick, wicked sounds bad, right? I mean, we hear the wicked are going to be judged and people that don't even maybe necessarily love God might be like, great, awesome. The wicked are going to be judged. That's, that's good. We all have some kind of justice, I think, just innately built into us. But in a day and age where we can have access to so much history and we can read about these just horribly wicked characters from 
from, from the past. We can see news footage from around the world in real time, and we can see people that are doing just really horrific things and just really excelling in evil deeds and, and destructive activities, and we can think, now those are some wicked people. But that's not the only thing that God's talking about in his word when he uses terms like wicked or evildoers or lawless. This isn't just the worst of the worst. If you have not confessed your sins, the Bible says that we are to repent of our sins and trust in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. That is what saves us from the wrath and the judgment of God. If you have not done that, then you are the wicked, you are the evildoer, you are the lawless person that is, go- that is standing directly in the path of God's judgment. And my fear is, or concern for, for many, that they will get to that day and they'll stand before God and they will think that their defense is going to hold up that says, well, I wasn't as bad as that guy. I did pretty good compared to so-and-so. I think if any of the defenses someone tries to give God that starts with I are probably going to be in pretty big trouble, unless it's I trust in Jesus. It kind of reminds me of chapter 7 of Matthew at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Those come before him saying, Lord, we did this and we did that, but he said, depart from me, I never knew you. My fear of going through a message on a Sunday morning and saying that the evil are going to experience God's wrath might just pass right over some people's heads because they think, well, I'm not evil. And I might not love God, but I'm listening to this message. I'm sitting in church. I'm not evil like a lot of people are evil. But that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about evil and evil and lawless and and a wrongdoer and wicked is somebody who has not repented of their sins and does not trust Jesus because you have broken God's law, you have not lived up to his holy standard, and without the blood of Jesus and, and through that blood receiving the righteousness of Christ that makes you right before God, you stand no hope when that day comes. So it truly is a terrifying day for many, and I hope if you have not heeded that warning in the past that you would heed that warning this morning, understanding what truly saves you from the wrath of God. God promises us through Peter, through his prophets, through all of Scripture, that he will bring justice to the lawless of the world. And it's because he loves the world, and he is righteous. And he has to judge sin when he comes back to set up his kingdom, because there can't be sin and evil in this world. So he has to judge sin and eliminate it. I think that if you look at verse 10, this is very interesting language that speaks of of God seeing our sin. Again, I think he's directing his thinking back to those who might think, well, God is far off. God is not really caring about what's going on in this world. Why would he let it all go on so long? He's probably not even going to come back. He says in verse 10, that the day of the Lord will come like a thief and the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Do you see the poetry in that? Do you see the picture that he's giving us? Don't think 
that God is distant, that God is not aware of what's going on, that we can somehow hide in, in, in doing unrighteousness in the dark or, or behind closed doors. He is going to peel back the atmosphere, the space, the stars, whatever is between God and us. He's going to roll it back and we will be exposed. The earth and all that is done on it are going to be exposed. He makes the point so clearly that nobody is going to get away with anything, that God is going to come back as he said that he would, and we can count on that, and that nobody is going to get away with evil. So then he goes on in verse 14, and really through the rest of this chapter now to the end, by giving us some things to do while we wait. He's laid down the foundation that we can trust Scripture. He has pointed to the fact that God has made promises, that Christ has made promises, that he will in fact return, and that we can count on that. And so he gives us a couple since thens. Since these things happen, this is what you should do. So this is, where we, this is where we have instruction on how we are to live our lives, on how we should process this, and how we should move forward waiting for the second return of Christ. In this letter all of the chapters, but especially chapters 2 and 3, Peter's warning the church to be on guard, right? We've established that. Be on guard for false teachers, those who are bringing destructive heresies into the church, and watch out for scoffers who are going to be denying God's word, undermining God's word, saying that he didn't mean what he said. Because these people are going to lead you into sin and away from truth, and they're going to use deception and, and bad theology. They're going to twist God's word, or they're going to undermine it, and they're going to try to get you, get weak people to fall away and start following sinful desires, lusts of the flesh, and greed. Look at verse 17. He says, you therefore, beloved, talking to the church now. This is important to recognize. He's not just talking to the lost, but he's talking to the church. Knowing this beforehand, that all these things are going to be taking place, Take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. Remember that Peter said at the, in chapter 1 that he knows his death is coming soon and he's writing this letter to warn us. This is like, he's like, if, this is any, if I could say anything to you, church, this is what I want you to know. And he wants us to be prepared so that when the false teachers come, not a matter of whether they will or not, but when they come, he wants us to recognize them and he wants us to be able to resist them and to not be carried away into living lawless lives, to living godless lives, because they gave some good reason why we should feel like we can get away with it. And so I think it's interesting that Peter uses uh, kind of a technique that we see in other places in Scripture. It's that general principle that a vacuum doesn't usually just exist without, you know, without something getting pulled into it. Something usually fills an empty space. I might have mentioned this during this second service a couple weeks ago, but Luke chapter 11, Jesus is telling of a person who has a spirit removed from them, an evil spirit, 
And it says the spirit goes looking for a place to find rest, and when he finds none, he says, I'm going to return to the house from which I came. So he's, the spirit says, I'm going to go back to this person that I was indwelling, and I'm going to reside there again. But he says when he comes back, he finds the house swept and put in order. So the house is, is empty and waiting for him. So he goes and brings seven other spirits, more evil than himself, and he enters and dwells there. And he says the last day to this person is worse than the first. I think Jesus is teaching there that if, if an evil spirit is removed from a person and, they're not, and it's not replaced by the Holy Spirit, then an, empty, then an empty vessel is just going to be filled with something and an evil spirit's going to come back and it's going to do more harm than it did the first time. We also see Paul talking at the end of Ephesians about a very similar principle. After Paul ta- gives this teaching on putting off the old self for Christians, those who have been saved, put off the old self, put on the new self that is being made in the image of Christ in in true righteousness and holiness. And he says a number of things. He says, don't lie. Put off lying. But he doesn't end it there. He says, don't lie, but tell the truth. See, he's, he's saying, don't do this anymore, but he's not just leaving us empty because now we would be susceptible to some other kind of godless activity, perhaps. But So he's saying, replace your lying with telling the truth. He says, don't steal, but work with your hands. Don't talk corruptly anymore, but use words that build each other up. So we see this principle all throughout Scripture of becoming a new person, becoming a person who has been saved, who is now a follower of Christ, who is putting off the old and putting on something new. And that's very similar to what Peter seems to be doing here. He's saying in, verse, in chapter 1, he, he, he builds this out beautifully, that you, you who have been given faith and received salvation through Christ because of your faith, He says, you have also become partakers of the divine nature. You now have the Holy Spirit living in you, who then, starting in verses 5 and maybe, I think, going through verse 8 in chapter 1, the Spirit that is in you is now creating a new person, is is sanctifying you, making you more Christ-like. He's saying that the Spirit in you is producing moral character, virtue, godliness, endurance, self-control brotherly kindness, selfless love, all of the things that are the opposite, by the way, of what the false teachers were teaching. And so I think it's so important to understand that Peter started, he spent the whole, what we have broken into chapters, it wasn't a chapter for him, but in our Bible it's a chapter, chapter one, laying this foundation of who you are in Christ of where, your, where true truth comes from, through the Word of God, where the power to live godly lives comes from, through the Spirit being in us. We are partakers of the divine nature. He gives us all of that important information, those foundational truths of who you are as a believer, before he goes and tells you, now look out for these wicked people who are going to come in and try to cause trouble in the church. And it's very important to understand that. We need the knowledge of truth and we need the power of the Spirit to be able to endure in resisting the attacks on God's Word and on people who will try to drag us away off to living godless lifestyles. Peter says in chapter 1, if we are saved, if we have been granted faith by God, and we are partakers of the divine nature. We are being led and taught by the Spirit. He said, you do the work 
make an effort to live out that godliness, to live out what you're learning in the scriptures that you have. Live out what the Spirit is working in you so that you can be morally excellent, so that you can be good, so that you can be all of these qualities. And he said, by doing that, your lives will be effective and fruitful. And if you don't, they will be fruitless and they will not be effective. You won't be able to recognize error. You'll be susceptible to following those who are trying to lead you astray. And so he's, he lays the foundation that it's so important to know where truth lies and to know where the power that comes from for us to be able to live day after day, enduring, resisting, following the truth, and not following the lies. And so in 11, verses 11 and 14 of chapter 3, he can tell us to be prepared in this twisted world, in this world that's full of sin, in this world where people are going to be attacking everything about the church and everything about God, he said, you, when that day comes, when that curtain is rolled back and the world is exposed and Christ comes to set up his kingdom of righteousness, be found without spot or blemish. And he doesn't say just do that in your own power. He has already laid that foundation that you are doing this because you have been called. You have been given power through the Spirit. Now live that out. Live out that righteousness because when that kingdom of righteousness comes, you want to be found as children of the King who are living righteously. You're living in a way that is pleasing and glorifying to God. He said in chapter 2, God has saved you. He's redeemed you from that sin. Why would you go back to living in sin and getting tangled in the tentacles of sin and in the enslavement of sin? Live righteously. He's giving us words of wisdom here, words that will allow us to escape from the bondage that the false teachers are telling us is freedom. And he's giving us words that will prepare us for the coming of a righteous kingdom. And so Peter ends this letter in verse 18 by exhorting believers to grow in grace and knowledge. We must, we must feed on God's Word. If we are going to know what righteousness is, we have to know who God is. If we are going to be able to recognize error, we have to know what God's Word says. We have to be able to recognize his holiness, and we will be able to recognize error in contrast to that. And he doesn't stop by saying, feed on God's word, know God's word. He also says, and live the life of an example himself, Peter, of submitting to God's will. So know God's word and submit to God's will. Perhaps sometimes we think grace stops at salvation. We've been given this gift of grace, this free gift, this undeserved gift of grace when we have received salvation from God, and that is true. But Scripture teaches us that God's grace continues to be given. God continues to show his favor on believers, and that's what Peter's saying. In your sanctification, in your growth, now that you are a believer, you've received that saving faith, that gift of grace, now continue to receive God's grace. Continue to know him through his word and see his glory. Continue to recognize the work that the Holy Spirit is doing in you and the great benefit that it is that you have been given the Spirit to live and you will be changed from the inside out and you will be a new creature. 
This is really how we live lives worthy of Christ and of his gospel, by knowing his word and by living out the, the fruit of the spirit that is working within us. I thought it was interesting that Peter gave us this exhortation, this instruction, after what he had gone through. You, many of you might be familiar with what Peter's story is. Before he wrote this letter, when he was a disciple, before Jesus went to the cross, Jesus said he was going someplace where, and his disciples couldn't go with him. And Peter said, well, I want to go with you. And Jesus says, you can't go with me. And Peter says, well, I'll die if I have to. So there's like, no, there's no place I can't go, Lord. Jesus says, no, I got to do this alone. And then we, we know that Scripture teaches that on that day, whether it was hours or, or maybe days after that, when Jesus was brought before um, the officials and he was on trial, Peter denied him. Peter denied even knowing him. He, not only was he not willing to, to die for Jesus, he denied knowing him and pretty much did whatever he had to do to save his own skin. Pretty big fall for Peter, a fall from grace. He, he made this bold proclamation in front of other people. But most importantly, he made it to God, to Jesus, and he failed big time. But we have the record of John chapter 21, where Jesus restored Peter. After his suffering and after his resurrection, Jesus came and caught back up with the disciples and revealed, him, revealed himself to them, and he restored Peter. Even after such a great fall, after such an evil act, denying his own Lord and Master, Jesus came and restored Peter back to ministry. He, he not, just, not only forgave him, but he called him to be a minister for him for the rest of his life. And Jesus' words at, at the end of chapter 21 of John tell us that Peter submitted to the will of God for the rest of his life. He became, he went from that denier that guy who was saving his own skin to a faithful witness of Jesus, a faithful minister of Jesus, faithful to the point of becoming a martyr. He died being obedient to his master. And he did it because he knew Jesus. He trusted Jesus' words. He trusted the words of the prophets and the apostles. He received salvation, after, repentance after he repented, and Christ restored him. He received Christ's restoration. And he lived in the power of the Holy Spirit the rest of his life, faithful to the point of death. And Jesus said, this was glorifying to God that Peter did that. And this is very similar to what Peter is calling believers to do here. To know God, to know Christ, to trust him, to believe the words of Scripture To know that you are not alone, that you have the Holy Spirit that is working in you, that is giving you the power, the strength, teaching you to be godly. One other thing of note with Peter's story that perhaps some here could resonate with, you might need that forgiveness of God. You might need that mercy that God showed Peter. Certainly all of us aren't walking as we should. None of us are walking as we should. 
in true godliness without fail. We all are failing. Some may have bought into the lies. Some may be following the false teachers. Some may have lost faith and wavered. As Peter said in chapter 17, lost your stability in your faith. But you can repent. You can humble yourselves and you can turn from this day forward and follow Christ and and accept the work that the Spirit is doing in you and live that out and trust Him to help you in your day-to-day lives. So, speaking of your everyday lives, I'm going to end with a few questions for self-examination. Do you know God? Do you know God? The primary way you're going to know Him is trusting and knowing His Word. Second question, do you know godliness? Do you know what it's like to live in righteousness, to follow God's will, to humble yourselves, put off the sinful desires, and to live godly lives? Third question is, would you recognize error when you see it or hear it? I think the answer to that question depends on the answer to your first two questions. Do you know God? Do you know godliness? If you don't know God and you don't know godliness, then you're going to have a real hard time recognizing error when it's presented to you. You'll be more easily deceived. That's why Peter said knowing God and living godly lives will help you to live effective and fruitful lives. So you've got to know God and you've got to know godliness or you won't be able to detect error and then you won't resist it and you will fall for it. We read a couple weeks ago a short clip from um, Charles Spurgeon that said that we are sons, for all who are believers, we are sons and daughters of the King of Kings. And so we should desire and we should try, we should make an effort to pursue righteousness with our lives because this world and this life will be over very quickly. But the kingdom of God, the righteous kingdom of God, when it is established on earth and its permanence will be eternal. And so, as we experience and have experienced and continue to receive mercy from God, and as He pours out grace on us, I hope that our hope will be unwavering as we wait for His triumphant return. Christ will come again. Do you believe it? Amen. So don't let your hope be shaken. And for some, I think an appropriate question could be, if He is in fact going to return, are you ready for that day? Lord, I pray that Your Word would be our source of knowledge and our source of truth, and that Your Spirit would be our guide, and that we would have an ever-growing desire to pursue the righteousness of your kingdom. And I ask this in Jesus' name, amen.